You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history. And for this episode, I have notes that are 17 pages long, which might be a new record. Um, I don't want you to worry. I think this is just going to be one normal sized episode. I think what happened was I was just pulling in so much information and I outline it, my notes are like in an outline format. So the the little bullet points keep getting indented more and more and more as I go. So eventually, it's just like one regular sentence, but it's taking up like five lines. I think that's why my notes are so extensive. We shall see we're gonna um, this is gonna be a wild ride today. Not least of all, because it is spooky season. Um, I made the decision as I sat down to record this episode just now that I'm going to hold off. Well, you're going to be listening to it on the day I actually release it, which is Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. But I made the decision to skip my normal release day, which is the last Thursday of every month, and wait for a couple days to drop it on Halloween because I love a theme. And I've tried to link the theme of the podcast with like the time of year that I'm recording it in before. It doesn't really matter because this is an art show, you know, art history is kind of forever. But for some reason, my favorite theme to like link to when I record these episodes is spooky. I love recording spooky episodes around Halloween. I think that's going to be an art of history tradition because I've done three of them now. Is that true? Is that right? Have I done this podcast for three Halloweens? Oh my goodness, time is moving. If you'd like to go back and listen to the other spooky episodes, um, they are the Mr. Lincoln, I presume, episode, which is all about ghost photography, um, as well as the Ghosts of Hampton Court Palace episode from last year. So those are the three Halloween episodes we've done so far. I guess there are many more to come. Um, my (laughs) My other favorite themed episode that I've done so far is... Thanksgiving last year is when I decided to do Ivan the Terrible murdering his son. Because, you know, family, we get together with our families at Thanksgiving and things don't always go smoothly. I love that that is what I decided to do. (laughs) Anyway, if you're new to this show, you might be very confused and tempted to turn it off. Please don't. I'm so happy to have you here. If you are new to the show, the premise here is so simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us some sort of story from the past. And I will let you know what today's, well, you probably already know, but today's episode, I will let you know what that's going to be in just a little bit. Before we dive in, though, I will remind you of a few things. Number one, please, if you are enjoying the podcast, do give it a rating, preferably five stars, a review, give it a subscription, send it to a friend, send it to your college roommate that you don't talk to anymore, but you took an art history 101 class together. Um, It really does help the show to get boosted and have new listeners, which helps me 
bring you more content. Um, I'm actually looking at doing content creating as my full-time gig pretty soon, which is amazing um, given all of the support I've been able to gather in the last couple years and how much fun I have doing this. That seemed like the right move for me. So um, who knows, maybe episodes will be (laughs) more frequent than once a month, which is something that I want and I think you want. Um, But yeah, rating and reviewing and telling a friend helps me get there faster. Um, Also, before we dive in, don't forget to head over to Instagram where I will post photos of the artwork we're discussing, some supplemental images, all that good stuff. You can also send me a DM over there if you like the podcast, if you want to give me some suggestions for episodes. The Instagram is at Art of History Podcast. So without further ado, I'm actually going to pour myself a little cup of autumn tea here. We're doing an orange and cinnamon blend today, which I'm very excited about. And let's dive into this, because today we are looking at a painting that whenever you Google scary paintings, spooky paintings, Halloween paintings, this is usually on the list, if not at the top of the list. It is The Nightmare by Henry Fuseli, which, okay, first of all, I did Google how to pronounce this artist's name because I was like, it seems simple, but it's probably not um, because he's Swiss. Google says Fuseli. I was saying Fuseli in my head. It's one of those. I'm going to say Fuseli, err on that side of, you know, things, but Henry Fuseli. And the painting is The Nightmare. If you Google the artist's name, this is the painting that's going to pop up. Um, You've probably seen it before, even if you don't know the name of it. Um, It shows a woman in a very flimsy white nightgown. She's asleep on a bed. Um, Her head is hanging off the end of it very limply, and her arms are thrown back over her head. Um, So she's not looking great. She looks maybe a little in distress right off the bat. Um, Her neck is kind of hyperextended. It's a little unnatural of a pose. And her very pale face is flushed. She has flushed cheeks. Um, Her eyes are closed. So she does appear to be sleeping. Although if you if she wasn't on a bed, you might think she had had died recently. And her lips are slightly parted. The way that her nightgown sort of clings to her her breasts, her thighs, it helps your eye move down across her body. Um, You kind of can't help taking it in. It's really displayed to an advantage, I would say. Um, And like I said, she's laying on a bed. The covers are in disarray. There is some red velvet fabric suspended from the mattress underneath her, and that echoes the red velvet within the room itself that's kind of draped behind her. There's these heavy curtains draped behind the bed, and a small table lays off to the side, has a mirror on it, two small little, they look like apothecary jars almost, as well as a book. That's the boring stuff in this picture, folks, because it's it's what, on, what what's on top of the woman that sort of immediately draws your eye. And that is a little crouching figure who is sitting squarely on her stomach yeah stomach up to her like her rib cage kind of area and i say a figure because it's kind of immediately clear that we're not looking at another human here it it really does look just kind of like well we'll get to it but it's this little crouching figure kind of looks like a man kind of not his body is facing like up the woman's body towards her head but her his head is turned like a full 90 degrees to look directly out of the canvas at us Um, It's really, really unsettling to look into his eyes, but we got to do it. This is an art history show. 
This figure has the face of something kind of like a cross between an old man, a chimpanzee, and a goblin. Um, He has this heavy, heavy brow and protruding, again, unsettling eyes. These wisps of hair kind of cascade down onto its shoulders, and it rests one hand, which is clawed, by the way, underneath its chin, kind of almost in like a thinker-esque pose, you know, with the fist right underneath your chin, um, as if he's kind of settled in for a while. He's like solidly sitting on top of this woman. It's also sitting like squarely on its haunches. Its knees are pulled into its chest and these hairy feet are just, again, resting like flat on the woman's body. And this squat figure casts a murky shadow on the drapes behind him. He has these pointed ears um, that you can't really see when you're looking straight at him, but in the shadow, you definitely can. And in the shadow, they also could maybe be horns. It almost looks like this is like a horned, demon figure sitting there. Then if you're able to turn your head, pull your gaze away from this figure, over to the left side of this figure, emerging from a parting in the curtain is the head of a horse. Um, It's black and it has these prominent white eyes that do not have pupils. You can zoom in. um, There are no pupils. So they're kind of expressionless in a way. Um, The horse has these flaring nostrils and its mouth is open. Possibly we're meant to read its expression as like one of shock or like frenzy almost. It has this like little lock of hair that's just almost looks like a flame. It's flying directly straight up between its um, ears. An article in The Telegraph describes this kind of concisely, saying the painting, quote, depicts a grinning horse poking its phallic head, don't worry, we'll get there, through crimson curtains as a woman sprawls in her nightie having hysterics. So there's a lot going on here, just just visually. If you need to take a minute to look this painting up, please do, <laughs> um, if you haven't seen it, if you don't know what we're talking about. Because there's a lot to dissect as well as just to look at. We're kind of looking at something of a dual image here. We're simultaneously seeing both an image of the effect that a dream the woman is having on her um, and presumably the content of that dream itself, symbolically represented in her physical space. So you have so much going on here on so many different levels, and it is all out of the brain of one Henry Fuseli. So let's back up. We'll get into his bio really quick and we'll catch up with him at the time he's painting this really, really odd, but also enduring and like very, very famous painting. So Henry Fuseli was born in Zurich, Switzerland on February 6th, 1741. He is an Aquarius, which makes a lot of sense. I'm also an Aquarius, by the way. Um, He's also maybe our first Swiss artist, if I'm like tallying them correctly. So that's cool. Fuseli was the second son out of five total children of one Johann Kaspar Fuseli and his wife, Elizabeth Vosser. Um, He was, quote unquote, forced by his father to train as a Zwinglian minister. Um, I could be mispronouncing that. It is Zwinglians. They are Protestants who practice a faith based on the teachings of Huldrych Zwingli. Um, So sorry, it's, you know, it's Swiss. I don't know. Um, Notable pieces of this doctrine included being pro-infant baptism, which if you didn't know, that's a big debate. Um, I'm Catholic, so I, of course, we, we baptize babies. That's just kind of what we do. 
I had no idea until very recently that a lot of the Protestant sects, like, that's one of the key differences in some of them is, like, not just, like, when to baptize people, but how to do it. Are you dunking them? Are you sprinkling them with water? Like, there's a spectrum here, and it's kind of fascinating to get into. I digress. This is this is going to be a long episode, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> the Zwinglians, they are pro-infant baptism, and they also hold that Jesus's presence in the Eucharist, the communion, um, is not literal as the Catholics believe, but rather symbolic. So on, on the spectrum of things, there's kind of a mix happening here. Zwingli himself, who uh, founded this doctrine, was also very patriotic. He believed that the church and state should be separate, but should both operate under the divine rule of God. Um, so this did not mean that the government was like an absolute authority on everything, you know, moral and man. Rather, Zwingli noted that when civil authorities acted, quote unquote, against the will of God, then we, quote, must obey God rather than men. So Fuseli was ordained in this religious order in 1761 when he was 20 years old. This will become relevant uh, much later in the episode in kind of a twist, I, I would say. <laughs> At the same time as Fuseli was becoming a Zwinglian minister, he also had a wide range of humanist interests. Um, he developed an enthusiasm for the classics, Shakespeare, Milton, things like that, um, as well as language. He was proficient in English, French, and Italian, as well as German, which I think was his native language. I've seen references to, like, that's the way he expressed himself when it was his most, like, personal thinking that he was doing. Um, his greatest influences included Homer, the epic poet, as well as Dante, Shakespeare, and Milton, as I said as well as the Nibelungenlied, which is the first epic poem published in Germany. Um, yes, I did practice that, and I know I'm not confident I got the word correct. Um, so all of these would later become major sources of inspiration for Fuseli's art, although he's 20 years old already and he hasn't embarked on his art career. He's actually going to get something of a, a late start um, in the art world. In 1763, as he's, you know, working in Switzerland as a minister, he published a pamphlet that was critical of the government, the civil administration in his area. And he was forced to leave Zurich, and he traveled at that time to Germany, England, and France, and decided to embark on a literary career. And in 1768, he is in England. He's made friends with the great painter uh, Sir Joshua Reynolds. He had shown him some drawings that he did. It was just like a hobby. And Reynolds said, you should you should consider pursuing this. So that's what Fuseli did. <laughs> in 1770, he traveled to Italy. Um, the National Gallery of Art says he, quote, sought inspiration from classical sculpture, Michelangelo in particular, and mannerist art, and befriended by the Swedish sculptor Johann Tobias Sergel, became the leading spirit of a group of innovative young artists. Fuseli's activities in Rome established his persona as a new kind of artist, daring, emotional, confrontational, as rebellious as Prometheus, and as ambitious as Michelangelo. He began to produce these works of art that would become some of the most dramatic, imaginative, and sensual of his time. That's not really anything to do with his artistic style, but rather the subject matter that he's deciding to tie in here. 
one of the most common threads that ties all of his work together is an element of the supernatural showing up time and time again. When Fuseli returned to London after kind of starting to work as a commercial artist, in 1780, he established his artistic reputation forever with The Nightmare. So this is the painting we are zeroing in on today. It's also one of the only ones of Fuseli's that people will kind of know if you say that name off the top of your head. But it is also a very recognizable painting. It um, features in a lot of media, even today. I feel like you have a specific memory tied to this painting. If you've seen it before, you're gonna usually remember where it was. In a lot of, like, TV shows and movies, when <laughs> this is kind of a weird thing to try and explain, but when maybe there are these, like, montages of horrific imagery, the nightmare is one of the images that kind of pops up for just like a split second sometimes, um, which is really cool, like that that's its place in, in our history. Um, but for me, like I remember the first time I registered it as, oh, this is like a singular work of art and there's a story here. It was in a series on Netflix called The Fall, which it's pretty great. It's a little unsettling as this whole episode is going to be, but it stars Jamie Dornan and Gillian Anderson. He's a serial killer. She's the detective inspector tasked with finding him. And it's kind of this, how their story is interwoven and how he's toying with the idea of like light and dark and who's innocent, who's guilty. <laughs> and this painting is, I won't spoil anything, but kind of a thread that connects those two characters he uses it to taunt her, the, de the detective that's after him. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, she, the character that Julie Anderson plays in the, in the show is, like, trying to puzzle out his meaning in using this painting to taunt her. And that's a hard thing to do because we don't know the meaning of this painting. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that one for free. So let's get into some of the symbolism happening here. Um, and li literally most of the rest of this episode is going to be kind of puzzling out some degree of meaning here, um, because this, it's an enigma, this painting. <laughs> I do want to give kind of a content warning before we go any further. Um, we are going to be having discussions of like a sexual nature in this episode, um, some of which involves like ideas of non-consent and just kind of generally icky attitudes about women and women's bodies in general. Um, so if you're not in the mood for that, feel free to turn the episode off. I will once again tell you we're not going to get to the bottom of the meaning of this painting today. So you're not technically missing much. <laughs> um, but also if you know, if this is the time when you need to put in headphones, um, I invite you to do that. So let's get right into it. <laughs> we'll zero right in on that little grotesque looking figure um, sitting up top the woman's chest. And that figure is often described and has been since this painting debuted as an incubus, a male demon which preys on innocent sleeping women. So the word incubus comes from the Latin to lie upon. So sleeping with, preying on women. Yes, we're talking about sexually assaulting sleeping women here, um, having intercourse with them that was believed to result in the birth of witches, demons, or deformed human offspring. This is kind of a folkloric belief that spans, you know, the entire world. A lot of different cultures around the world have this type of um, creature in their in their myths, in their folklores, especially in medieval Europe, I think is probably the place where it 
really took root and influenced the thinking that made Fuseli included in this painting. Because the, the common reaction that people have when they look at this picture is one of kind of horror, disgust, a feeling of wanting to like recoil or draw back. And the incubus is a big, big part of that. So is the woman's outward appearance. You know, she's, for all of her apparent unconsciousness, she's described as a very erotic figure. Um, her pose, for one, just kind of open to all who want to come upon her. Um, her night clothes are just clinging onto her body. She's got this very curvy form. So it's all kind of inviting that type of sexually charged attention as she is kind of just laid out on this bed here. Now, given those things, the painting itself doesn't cross the line into explicit. Nothing is happening in the picture. It's just the positioning and the illusions that it brings to mind make you pretty uneasy. <laughs> um, and that's tough to grapple with because Fusely as the artist, he's allowing us to kind of draw our own conclusions about what is happening here. What's the nature of the, the relationship between the woman and this demon figure? And what's he doing there, you know? So the demon himself, the incubus, and likewise, the horse's head penetrating the gap over in the curtains, they could be physical representations of an actual like, nocturnal nighttime sexual assault. But other aspects of the painting do allow us as the viewer to come away with another conclusion, that the demon figure isn't real at all, and that the woman is simply dreaming. And that's where the painting gets its name, the nightmare. The woman is sleeping in a position that was in Fuseli's day, and I think today as well, um, laying flat on your back, is said to encourage nightmares. And yet, with the solidly rendered forms of the incubus and the horse, which they, they do, they interact so like firmly with the scene, the setting of the painting, the, if she is seeing a dream here, if we are looking at the woman's dream, it appears real. As, I mean, if you've ever woken up from a very intense nightmare, for a second, you always would swear that it was real. So Fusely, I think, is playing with that divide between the real and the unreal, the supernatural even, the metaphysical, and that is something we will return to a little bit later. Let's continue looking at some of the symbols here. The horse um, has always given me, personally, a little bit more trouble when it comes to kind of working out the meaning of the nightmare. Because it, it is very tempting <laughs> to see this horse and think of the phrase nightmare and put the two together in a very neat little equation. And a lot of times, maybe if you go on a date with somebody to, um, oh, where is this painting? Uh, oh, if you happen to live in Detroit, <laughs> at the Detroit Institute of Arts in Michigan. So say you're at the Detroit Institute of Arts with a Tinder date and he really wants to impress you. He will tell you that the horse is there to symbolize that this is a nightmare. And I am here to tell you that that is false. We're debunking that myth today. Of course, your Tinder date, you know, he's coming from a good place. He, he, there is this understanding that the term nightmare comes from some archaic reference to horses maybe riding through a sleeper's brain carrying bad dreams. But the mare of nightmare actually comes from the word mare or mara, which is an old English term for an evil spirit that was said to settle physically on a person's chest as they slept. 
causing a feeling of suffocation. And incidentally, there were different terms in Old English for both a female and a male horse. The compound word nightmare first appears in Middle English writings, and it refers specifically to the spirit, Mera, which would visit you at night. Over time, it also came to encompass generally that sensation of having a bad dream that left you with that just really sinking heavy feeling, that feeling when you wake up that your chest is very heavy and you're kind of being pushed down into your bed. And as so often happens, with more time, the meaning loosened even more so that today we just use the word nightmare as a catch-all for any truly terrifying dreams. Incidentally, Christopher Frayling in an essay called Nightmare, the Birth of Horror, actually credits this painting, The Nightmare, and Fuseli's choice to include the horse with all of the confusion about the etymology of the word. So it might be thanks to Fuseli including the horse in a painting called The Nightmare that your Tinder date is actually telling you that the horse in The Nightmare is there because of the word nightmare. So all things are circular is what we're getting at here. To make things more interesting, according to 18th century biographer John Knowles, who saw the first sketches that Fuseli made for The Nightmare, the horse was not in the initial composition. It was added to the painting at a later time. So to me, then, it seems unlikely that the horse is like so crucial to the message of this painting because it wasn't part of it originally, as simple as that. More likely, I think it was an additional symbol that Fuseli decided to throw in later to strengthen whatever message he's trying to send through this scene. Also, it just makes things that much more unsettling and eerie. I mean, every time I look over at that horse, I'm like, ugh, why? Why are you there? What's more, <laughs> with those Old and Middle English definitions of nightmare, would it then be a stretch to suggest that Fuseli included the horse as a way of tying us into that sinking feeling, that feeling of a spirit sitting on your chest, that physical sensation of shortness of breath or chest pressure that was that we so often feel after waking up from an unpleasant dream. I think maybe yes, even if it is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> but we're essentially left with this question. Is the woman in the nightmare actually being preyed upon by some malicious nighttime visitor, like in the flesh? Or is she merely dreaming that she is, perhaps due to the presence of a malicious spirit, a Mara, in her chambers, sitting on her chest? That's the crux, I would say, of the issue you're forced to confront here when you look at this painting. And Fuseli, for his part, he does his job well, leaving you with that burning question in your mind. To do that, some of the technical things he's employing, really quick, I know, it's an art podcast, we gotta do the technicalities. It's not so much that we're relying on, and not even an atmosphere here, you know, the painting itself, it is spooky, but it's not relying on too many tropes in a way. Even the colors of the painting, they're not, you know, remarkably spooky. In fact, <laughs> I found this note about Fuseli's use of colors in the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica entry about him. That entry notes that, quote, as a colorist, Fuseli has but small claims to distinction. He scorned to set a palette as most artists do. He merely dashed his tints recklessly all over it. 
Not unfrequently, he used his paints in the form of a dry powder, which he rubbed up with his pencil with oil or turpentine or gold size, regardless of the quantity, and depending for accident on the general effect. This recklessness might perhaps be explained by the fact that he did not paint in oil till he was 25 years of age. Despite these drawbacks, he possessed the elements of a great painter. <laughs> so yes, when you kind of look closely at the nightmare, I think you do find that Fuseli's handling of color, well, it's it's not amateurish. He does know what he's doing, but it's not as precise or maybe not used to as great an effect as it could be or what you might see with other, you know, of these masters of painting. What's more, if you do zoom in, the colors around the edges of some of the figures, notably the horse and the demon, um, they sort of blend into the colors of the backdrop. They're not they're 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 not sharp, they're not crisp. Um, we're sort of just I could imagine him just kind of scribbling color onto the canvas, definitely. Maybe that's intentional though, to show us the ethereal and supernatural nature of the scene that we're looking at. But if nothing else, you can certainly say that the nightmare is wonderfully lit. Lighting is used to great effect here, especially if the intent of that is to dramatize the scene. The woman herself is rendered in these very bright light tones, the blindingly light when it's compared to the rest of the picture. And the light source that's illuminating her seems to come in from the right side of the canvas. It falls like right across her torso and her face and kind of diffuses itself as you go down her legs. And the effect of this is to illuminate her as our focal point, and in my mind, possibly to also aid the viewer in distinguishing what might be real and what might be happening only on a more metaphysical level, whether that's in her head or um, because we're looking at a spirit here that only comes out at night, you know? Technically, to achieve this contrast, Fuseli is using the technique of chiaroscuro, which literally means light dark in Italian, so that's pretty easy. Um, so we've mentioned another term that refers to um, light and dark on this podcast before, and that is tenebrism, which was very popular in Baroque painting. People like Caravaggio are using tenebrism, and that's an artistic technique that does create contrast between light subjects and dark backgrounds. So that's what we're talking about with chiaroscuro, you know, a light subject and a, back, a background that is darker. The difference between tenebrism and chiaroscuro is kind of the depth and the renderings of the, the darkness, the shadow. Chiaroscuro is going to use much more subtle variations in light and shadow to create depth around a subject. So it doesn't just have to be like one thing is, is lit up for us and everything else is dark. Chiaroscuro can be used just in like a, a f the figure of a person to show us the physical form that they have, but it's using light and dark to do that. Tenebrism, on the other hand, goes very sharply from a bright, illuminated, almost spotlighted subject to a full, like stark black background. So we're talking about like the difference between taking in a scene in a play that's illuminated by some glowing, soft downstage light versus watching a monologue where the person, the actor, is lit in full by one single spotlight. So that's kind of the difference here. And I think Fuseli's choice to work with light that was a little bit more subtle 
kind of lends itself well to the way that he was communicating through his painting, because a lot of his work to this point had some higher meaning, some moral message with which you, the viewer, could walk away. So being able to contemplate a scene and all of the subtleties within it would be helpful for that. Much of Fuseli's work referenced his humanist interests and education, namely Shakespeare. The scenes from Shakespeare are very common in his paintings, as well as Keats or Greek mythology. Some of his work also referenced stories from the Bible, which are very prominent in Western art at this time as well. That's kind of the, the original source material for uh, Western painters. In contrast, when we're looking at the nightmare, there's no meat here. There's no depth to the subject. There is no story that we're pulling upon. There's no lore. <laughs> There's no deeper knowledge to be found. The scene is entirely invented and pulled from Fuseli's own, safe to say, overactive imagination. And that's very notable because a lot of the times what made a great painting for people at, say, the Royal Academy, um, it was your source material. It was the way that you were faithfully representing these tales that people knew, these archetypes that people knew. But in The Nightmare, there is no moral. There's nothing to compare it to. There's no cautionary tale, no fable. There's no like application that you can do once you walk away from this painting. The one thing that The Nightmare does have is an understanding of artistic convention and of art historical subject matter in general and how it was painted. It's almost like a... A scenario of you have to know the rules in order to break them. You know, Picasso was a, a an exceptionally trained classical artist before he turned to abstraction. So Fuseli, yes, he's inventing a scene, but he's doing so as he makes use of artistic techniques and conventions that the viewers would be familiar with. So there is a jumping off point as people are looking at this painting. After all, this painting was exhibited at the Royal Academy in year... Hello, I, I told you 17 pages of notes. Uh, 1782, <laughs> the Royal Academy in London exhibited this work. It was Fuseli's only piece in that year's exhibition. So at this point, a piece of, I don't know, context, I guess you could say, a theme that people might have been ready to pick out of an artwork, even if there wasn't um, a story, a grand moral here to be pulled from it, was a sense of romanticism. Now, we discussed romanticism in our episode on the Raft of Medusa a few months back. Um, I, by the way, I'm still proud of calling that a picture of a romantic, capital R, getaway. You know, it's pat on the back for myself for that one. Um, romantic paintings, romanticism, allows a viewer to get swept up in their emotions and be completely overwhelmed, um, and especially to have their sense of reason, their logic, be completely overwhelmed and swept away. The idea with romantic art was to be completely consumed by whatever it is you're looking at, and therefore, as a result, to kind of marvel at the human experience, what it means to be human. Romantic art also emphasized the individual, also delivering the greatest uh, benefits usually when it was experienced alone or referencing some kind of solitary experience. So allowing you to really just go into yourself and introspect. Now, much of Fuseli's art did fulfill the desires of the romantics, which is why I say that's some context that people might have been bringing as they're looking at it. But his art did sometimes go even further. 
and it fell into a subcategory of romanticism, the Gothic. So where romanticism is all about emotional themes on this sort of grand scale, the Gothic in art lurks more in the shadows. And yes, that is a little bit of a pun. Foraying into these dark and often taboo subjects. Says Professor John Mullen, Gothic involves the supernatural or the promise of the supernatural, and it often involves the discovery of mysterious elements of antiquity, and it usually takes its protagonists into strange or frightening old buildings. If you've ever read a novel that at some point has something like the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night, that's the Gothic. (laughs) If you've ever watched a movie and it has a scene where there's like an old creepy mansion up on a hill that gets completely backlit by lightning, that's the gothic. (laughs) So these experiences and Fuseli's paintings did allow viewers to ponder, yes, what it means to be human, but also they explore something called the sublime, that intersection point between the earthly and the otherworldly. So we have again the emotional and the rational just pumped up to 10, really to get your heart pounding. Sublime experiences in art and literature were ones that inspired awe and reverence, even when they might also unnerve you. Think of the sublime as that moment when you pass an accident, and even though you know that you shouldn't look, you do anyway. You're kind of, you're almost tempting fate. You're you're getting that peak behind the veil. And even though you might want to avert your eyes, often you can't. That's the feeling that was evoked for the first viewers of The Nightmare, and I imagine it's the feeling that many contemporary viewers still experience when they see it, really, really see it for the first time. Because it's an image that even today you might look away from. You might see it uh, by pure happenstance, only to file it away in your mind for later when you can look at it more closely, but also in private. So that facet of shock, that that element that kind of takes you aback and knocks you off your rhythm, that's a key hallmark of gothic art and literature. Um, Because most of us have probably encountered gothic novels or adaptations of them in, in some form before. They're the ones that steep you in that unsettling scenery. They make your heart race. They distress you. Usually, yes, because of some dark, irrational forces that may or may not be at play. But also, gothic stories leave you with questions about the very nature of humanity to chew on. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is probably the most famous example of a gothic novel. There's also Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, um, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, and Bram Stoker's Dracula, all very gothic stories that spring kind of instantly to mind. Even Jane Austen, my girl, um, she toyed with the Gothic in her 1817 novel Northanger Abbey, um, which references one of the most popular and earliest um, 18th century Gothic novels. This was Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho from 1794. All of these works, though, they do come much later than Fuseli's painting, and many consider the nightmare to have been an inspiration for some of those writers working with Gothic motifs. So writers like Mary Shelley, whose 1818 novel Frankenstein is one of the most influential, not of this time, of all time, like full stop. (laughs) The mad scientist character is like considered to be the first in popular media for one thing. And you've seen, you know, if you've watched TV, you've seen where that's taken us. 
Now, whether Mary Shelley herself was directly influenced by viewing the nightmare is something that's been debated throughout the centuries. But she actually has another more peculiar connection to Henry Fuseli um, through her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. If you didn't know Mary Wollstonecraft, the author of the foundational text um, in feminism, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, she was Mary Shelley's mother. Both Mary Wollstonecraft and her husband, Mary Shelley's father, William Godwin, sorry, William, they knew Henry Fuseli, um, but it was Wollstonecraft who was particularly enamored with the artist to the point that she, quote, swooned over what she called the grandeur of his soul, that quickness of comprehension and lovely sympathy. You know the saying that goes like, I need him in a way that sets feminism back? Yeah, that feels particularly apt when we're talking about the crush that Mary Wollstonecraft had on Henry Fuseli. And this was, I should note, before she met and married William Godwin. Fuseli was 47 and Mary was 29. He was also recently married himself to um, one of his former artistic models named Sophia Rollins. We're going to return to Sophia a little later in the episode. Mary later told her husband, William Godwin, that she never had a physical relationship with Fuseli, but she did enjoy the, quote, endearments of personal intercourse and a reciprocation of kindness without departing in the smallest degree from the rules she prescribed to herself. So in short... (laughs) Mary was in love with Henry Fuseli. Um, in 1974, biography of her notes that, quote, from him, Mary learned much about the seamy side of life. Obviously, there was a time where they were in love with each other and playing with fire. The increase of Mary's love to the point where it became torture to her is hard to explain if it remained at all times entirely platonic. Mary did maintain that her love for Fuseli was platonic, was kind of like an innocent love. Um, 1970s biographies, man, if you've never read one, they are sensational. And I mean that in a, in a negative way. <laughs> um, anyway, the, that love was not reciprocated. And again, we will return to this a little later in the episode. Wollstonecraft did die shortly after baby Mary Shelley's birth, um, leaving the daughter tormented forever, pretty much by grief and guilt. Echoes of this trauma would crop up for Shelley again when her own firstborn baby died two weeks after birth, a trauma that resulted in, according to Professor Anne Mellor, a recurring dream of the baby's resurrection. Given her connection through her mother to Henry Fuseli, the fact that she may have seen the painting and these dreams, it should be no surprise then that references to nightmares appear in Frankenstein quite often, as well as passages that conjure kind of mental images that almost exactly echo the composition of the painting, The Nightmare. For example, once um, Dr. Victor Frankenstein's monster has become full of rage and vengeance for his treatment at the hands of humankind, spoiler, I guess, for <laughs> alert for Frankenstein if you've never read or seen it, it has been out for um, over 200 years. The monster kills the doctor's new bride, Elizabeth, on their wedding night. Um, Mary Shelley's description of this scene could easily be also a description of the nightmare, the painting, (laughs) Fuseli's composition. It reads, quote, She was there, lifeless and inanimate, thrown across the bed, her head hanging down, and her pale and distorted features half covered by hair. Everywhere I turn, I see the same figure, her bloodless arms and relaxed form flung by the murderer on its bridal bier. 
And I will also post a picture on the Instagram of a still from, oh gosh, what year is this movie from? The 1930s, I believe. <laughs> um, the film adaptation of Frankenstein. And even in the film, they're, I think, referencing the composition of the, the painting, The Nightmare, because of how closely it's associated with this passage from the original text. So just fascinating the way that art kind of permeates culture. And we're going to, I keep saying this, we're going to return to that because there are so many common threads throughout this painting's history that just bring us right up to the present. I love it. Now, the woman is, through all of these common threads, kind of a central focal point for the viewer because there's there's kind of this other level that the viewer might be engaging with the painting on. And that is the, a place of concern for the woman's like physical well-being. That's a feeling that comes up when you kind of look at this painting. Even without fusily drawing upon historical or literary influences to craft this scene, the viewer is able to almost concoct a narrative on their own. We're able to put the pieces together in our head, as it's a story that unfortunately we, we know all too well that of a female figure being physically preyed upon by a male figure. And to do that, we're going to kind of return to Fuseli, not just as an artist, but as the narrator of this scene, because his own life might provide some overtones to the nightmare as a, as a composition, as a painting that has come solely out of his brain, um, overtones that finally give it that much needed piece of context that I think we've been craving. <laughs> We're going to get into that just after this very short break. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back. And at this point, like I said, we're going to return to Henry Fuseli, uh, his biography, not just as an artist, but as a man, because there's a portion of his life story that I intentionally left out at the start. Um, and that is that he was a bit of a weirdo, uh, sexually speaking. You might even call him, or in the times that he lived in, they might have called him a deviant if people had kind of picked up on the full extent of this. Um, if we want to get all Freudian up in here, this this does provide kind of a psychological lens through which we can take a second look at The Nightmare, his most famous painting. Incidentally, also a painting that um, Sigmund Freud had on his the wall of his apartment in Vienna. So again, everything's kind of circular. <laughs> so an article in The Telegraph, um, I'm not going to tell you the title of it because it kind of gives away <laughs> the punchline here. But an article in the Telegraph notes that Fuseli's theological tutors, back when he was training to be a minister in Switzerland, thundered against the sin of female artifice, which deceived, in their minds, honest men. Quote, 
A woman has erected a pointed tower of cloth on her head like Gothic architecture, they wrote. Her, cl her clothes are made up of so many superficial and frivolous hooks and extensions that presume to show off parts of the body that what one actually imagines is a misshapen monster lurking beneath. So this is Protestant Zurich, Switzerland, actually a place that had sumptuary laws at, at this time. Um, sumptuary laws, I think we talked about them in one of the episodes about the Tudors, maybe the Elizabeth episode, um, they are laws that kind of control how fancy you can dress um, for either reasons of the king or queen not wanting to you to look better than they did, or for reasons like this, where um, Protestants writing these laws also wrote that, quote, in an age of luxury, women have taste... Oh, I'm sorry, this was... <laughs> Not not lawmakers. Uh, this is Fusely writing. In an age of luxury, women have taste, decide, and dictate, he wrote. In an age of luxury, woman aspires to the function of man, and man slides into the offices of woman. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little familiar? People worried about, like, I don't know, people's clothing suggesting something about the way that society is heading and making that out to be a bad thing, even though it's like just men in skirts. No, does that not ring a bell for anybody else? Okay. The point is here, <laughs> the evolution of woman's dress for Protestant lawmakers in Zurich and for Fuseli himself had manifested itself as a, quote, crisis of masculinity and thus civilization. And this sort of anxiety about the way that men and women were dressing and the way that civilization was headed, it does come out in some of Fuseli's art to the point that an exhibition at the Courtauld Institute called Fuseli and the Modern Woman featured pieces that speak to this as an anxiety. Among those pieces were, quote, charming little sketches of fashionable women with very striking hair, stranger and stranger hair, Big hair, bizarre hair, Star Wars hair, hair that looks like an Aztec temple or an architect's design for an airport terminal, 1950s sci-fi comic book hair that owes something to ancient Rome, something to melamine household appliances. I will, of course, post pictures of this on the Instagram. So Fuseli, he's so fixated on women's fashion and their hair, um, but kind of to a sinister degree. Because the exhibition's subtitle tells a deeper part of the story. The show was called Fuseli and the Modern Woman, Fashion, Fantasy, Fetishism. Fuseli wasn't just fascinated by the appearance of women. He was like literally obsessed with it and it infiltrated his art to, like I said, a sinister degree. The, the Telegraph calls his obsession, quote, judgmental, moralizing, finger wagging, but at the same time, pawing. Hair is just the tip of the iceberg here, folks. It was just one of the aspects of a woman's physicality that Fuseli, yeah, fetishized, and he also sought to control through this art. In Rome, where he had begun his artistic studies in 1770, he had actually produced to a, quote, industrial level, pornographic sketches of men being abused by courtesans or cruel temptresses of legend. So think Adam and Eve, Samson and Delilah, um, Gunther and Brunhild, all of these examples of the roles being reversed, women corrupting their men. When Fuseli settled in England in 1779, where he made his name very shortly, thanks to the nightmare, he found a discreet market for these erotic drawings. So they were not so much a part of his um, like public-facing work, but he was definitely still 
producing them, even refining them into a style that a later critic nicknamed sado-mannerist. And I said hair was the tip of the iceberg. Um, Fusilli also favored painting bottoms, butts, asses. <laughs> Quote, again and again, Fusilli depicts a fully clothed, fashionable woman squarely from behind in a way that feels subversively more dirty than if she hadn't a stitch on. Not only does this save the viewers the bother of engaging with a personality when they could be spending quality time with a rump, but there is once again that topsy-turvy end-of-civilization flavor that Fusilli has imbibed at Zwinglian College. As the Courtauld cat catalog solemnly puts it, quote, often in Western art, when the bottom comes to the fore, it signals that the world has fallen into disorder. So that is from the Telegraph article that I referenced, um, which then goes on, quote, he was also not indifferent to feet. Um, the Telegraph article, if you want to go read it, I think I've paraphrased a lot of it here, but it's called Star Wars Hair, Aztec Hair, Henry Fusilli's Fetish Revealed. And the subtitle is The Swiss Painter of the Nightmare was Sigmund Freud's favorite. And once you've seen his secret sketches, you'll understand why. <laughs> um, yeah, there is probably a lot uh, psychologically going on here. And I will once again post these weirdo sketches over on the Instagram. All right, so... <laughs> Fusely, like I said, he's just, he's producing some weird stuff, a little bit just perverse, um, suggesting a lot of things morally about the world, which also linked to his sexuality. And even when he married his wife, Sophia Rollins, in 1788, he was 46. She was in her early 20s. Um, he did not ease up on the fetishized portion of his work. And if anything, he doubled down. His marriage also didn't prohibit him from pursuing the sexual conquests that he so enjoyed. Because, oh, if you were listening to me describe some of his artwork and you were thinking, man, this guy just needs to get some, get this off of his chest. Um, he was, he was getting some. Fusilli had a reputation as something of a reprobate, <laughs> um, talking constantly about sex to his friends and pursuing women who largely did find him attractive. Um, if you'd like to know what he looks like, there are some portraits of him. I will put one on the Instagram. Writing in 1831, after Fusilli has died, John Knowles, who is his biographer, but also his friend, recorded that Fusilli was, quote, rather short in stature, about five feet, two inches in height. His limbs were well proportioned, his shoulders broad, and his chest capacious. His complexion was fair, his forehead broad. His eyes were large, blue, and peculiarly expressive and penetrating. His nose large and somewhat aquiline, his mouth was rather wide, and although his features were not strictly regular, yet his countenance was, in the highest degree, intelligent and energetic. The expression of his face varied in a remarkable manner with the quick impressions of his mind. He was clean and neat in his person and dress, and very particular with his hair, which was carefully dressed every day with powder. Remember, this is the 1780s. <laughs> Sometimes, Fusilli was whipped up into what he called a state of frenzy by his chosen female conquests. But his sexual inclinations were also, quote, inseparable from contempt, perhaps fear. As his contemporary Mary Balmano put it, in his estimate of the female sex, Fusilli was not very flattering. His wife, Sophia, had been one of his artistic models, and she continued to sit for him after they were wed, something that Fusilli seems to have used as an outlet for some of his attitudes about the fairer sex. 
One of his earliest drawings, for example, shows a half-wit husband crouching under the foot of his ornately attired wife. Um, that's a description from the catalog of the Courtauld exhibit from last year. Um, another picture depicts a man being, quote, hooked with a literal fishing lure in his mouth by a prostitute. So we have this contempt, again, coming through between any kind of union between modern, quote unquote, women um, and men. In these images, quote, this fool has fawn prey to the whore's artifices, the tawdry dazzle of her dress with its cinched waist and slashed sleeves, and the unnaturally horn-like protuberances of her angular coiffure. That's not a catalog description, that is a description of the painting from Fuseli himself. Sophia, his wife, now sat gamely, quote, for drawing after drawing, while Fuseli transformed her from the lovely young wife to a domineering virago. Virago? Mm. Her face is to be found on the body of a courtesan, or one of the merry wives humiliating Falstaff. In other drawings, her hand is to be found in her crotch. Ever the coiffure, her hair, becomes more and more alien. So he's using his wife to kind of continue driving these uh, messages about women. Icky. For her part, the National Gallery of Art does note that Sophia was, quote, obsessed with hair and fashion and was socially and intellectually Fuseli's inferior, and they had no children. I'm not, I, I'm not really sure if they think that makes this okay, um, but they do conclude that she, quote, appears to have satisfied her husband's fetishistic and other desires. I don't know when that was written. I would love to see it um, edited if someone from the National Gallery of Art is listening. Because, you know, it's it's one thing to copy notes, you know, into your outline. Um, it's another one to read them out loud. And that was gross. I feel gross after reading that. <laughs> um, the Telegraph article I referenced then goes on to question, quote, was it a private rebellion against the respectable English painter he was outwardly trying to become, presumably to drive Fuseli to do this? For the same reason, perhaps, he toyed with the much younger Mary Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft, by the way, this is the time when she was pursuing Fuseli after his marriage to Sophia. She even suggested that she should move in with him and Sophia in something of a platonic menage a trois. Um, so she did insist to Sophia, to the wife, that because her love for Henry Fuseli was strictly innocent and platonic, it would be an ideal living arrangement. Incidentally, it was Sophia who put a stop to the communication between Wollstonecraft and Fuseli, and that happened in 1792. Although Henry, the man himself, probably would have us believe that he merely grew bored of Mary Wollstonecraft. He later remarked, quote, I hate clever women. They are only troublesome. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to rein it in here. I could go on about this weirdo forever. At the time that Fuseli was painting The Nightmare, he was in the throes of an unrequited romance of his own with a woman named Anna Landolt. Landolt was the niece of Swiss poet and physiognomist Johann Kaspar Lavater. Lavater? Who knows? He was a man that Fuseli known from his time as a Zwinglian minister and um, physiognomy, if I think we referenced it again, again, maybe in the Raft of the Medusa episode, that was a pseudoscience of this time that believed that you could tell something about a person's characteristics and personality just from their facial features. Um, if you've ever seen like the 
again, pseudoscience that like claims to be able to measure your skull and tell you something about yourself. That's the same kind of thing. Do you remember I told you that Fuseli had to leave Zurich because he published a pamphlet that was criti- critical of the government? He actually did that with Lavater. Um, so they were kicked out of Zurich together in 1763. Lavater's niece, Anna, was engaged to be married to another man, and he she did not reciprocate Fuseli's like, obsessive feelings for her. Um, in a letter to a close friend, which... Listen to this letter and tell me if you would ever admit something like this to even your best friend in the whole wide world. Henry Fuseli is writing about a dream that he had about Anna, this woman who he loves that does not love him. Quote, Last night I had her in bed with me, tossed my bedclothes, hugger-mugger, wound my hot and tight-clasped hands around her, fused her body and soul together with my own, poured into her my spirit, breath, and strength, Anyone who touches her now commits adultery and incest. She is mine and I am hers. And have her, I will. So if it's not clear, notice the way that Henry Fuseli is structuring this passage. He had her, she is his, but also have her, I will. This didn't actually happen. He's either imagined this or or experienced it in his mind, but he's, he's describing his desire for this woman, not in the abstract, but he's like blurring the lines between reality and these impulses that he's having. Perhaps Freud entering the chat, perhaps subconsciously. Now, if you project this knowledge, the way he's thinking about this woman who he's enamored with, but who he does not, to be clear, once again, does not have a physical relationship with. If you project that onto the canvas, that would eventually become the nightmare, that painting. You've got a Freudian wet dream, like, for sure. If we consider that this is the place from which Fuseli is is approaching the canvas, this is all happening around the time he's starting to conceive of this painting, maybe that woman in the painting becomes Anna Landolt herself. In that case, then, is Fuseli the artist? Is he the demon sitting on her chest? Is he trying to possess her in that way? Is the nightmare acting as an outlet for the romantic and sexual frustrations that he could not act on in reality? I don't know, maybe. Maybe he's the horse acting as an onlooker to those impulses that, again, maybe subconsciously he's grappling with. The Telegraph, I love this line, um, they write, quote, It was as if Fuseli had read the manual. You would surely struggle to tick more Freudian boxes at once. Now, again, this could be a personal lens that we can see the nightmare through. This could be. It also could not be. Uh, Another detail that kind of like made a light bulb go on for me. Maybe it will for you. I'm not sure. The nightmare as a painting, it's relatively small, at least where other works exhibited at the Royal Academy are concerned. It was about 40 by 50 inches and others in the 1782 exhibition they were like double or triple that size. So it's kind of a big painting, but it's also kind of a small painting. Depicting the nightmare, the scene on a smaller scale, one which both the artist himself and the viewer could contend with the subject matter on a more personal level. To me, that kind of lends credence to the idea that Fuseli was painting this scene to kind of grapple with his own thoughts, his own self-awareness even. Maybe he was clearing his conscience or recording a vision or like even a hallucination. I think it's possible. 
There's also one more tidbit. Again, I'm so sorry. I've intentionally withheld this from you. Uh, a tidbit that steers a possible interpretation of this canvas into the it was personal realm. There is an unfinished portrait of a young woman on the back of the nightmare. Could it be Anna Lind Landolt herself? Uh, again, maybe. We do not know who this woman is. I will post a picture of her, of course, on the Instagram. Um, she's beautiful. Whoever she is, she has pale skin. She has full brows, very Georgian fashionable, as well as her towering powdered hairstyle. It's kind of cut off by the top of the frame. Um, it's not as grotesque as some of the other hairstyles that um, Fusely would put in, into his like prints and his drawings. Notably, he only produced, I think, a couple portraits, like proper portraits of individuals during his lifetime. The rest are these like caricatures or archetypes. It seems like this is a portrait meant to represent an actual person. Um, it appears that she has either a veil or like this cascading loose strand of her hair falling down her back, kind of in a spectral way. She does look a little otherworldly. Her dress is made up this of this like sheer white fabric. It's over top uh, this more opaque blue satin fabric. Her hands, one of them falls at her side. One is like fiddling with the loose bottom layer of her hair. Her hands are like almost grotesque the way that he's painted them. They're elongated and almost engorged. Now behind this woman is a heavy red curtain, eerily reminiscent of those in the composition of The Nightmare on the opposite side of this canvas. Is it possible that we are looking at a waking version of the woman who is central to The Nightmare? Again, perhaps. The historian Frayling notes that, quote, Fusily confessed in language self-consciously modeled on Rousseau and Goethe to being madly in love with at least three women between 1778 and 1780. The sleeping girl in the painting may resemble the unfinished portrait on the back, or it may not. The Mara may resemble Fusily himself, in which case the painting is an act of fantasy retribution, or it may not. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Some people have even looked upon the face of the demon or the incubus in the nightmare and have seen the face of Henry Fusely, the artist, peering back at them. I will leave comparison images on the Instagram so that you can judge that for yourself. As for people who were judging the painting when it was first released, we could say, that was at the 1782 Royal Academy exhibition. Um, that year, the Academy saw over 12,000 more visitors than the previous year. And it's very possible that the nightmare, which was enthralling audiences, was a reason for that. Christopher Frayling notes that at the Academy that year, quote, among all the paintings, considerably smaller than most of them, next to T. Gooch's Portraits of Horses and Dogs Belonging to the Honorable Mr. Pitt, number 63, and one of Philippe Jacques de Lutherberg's Landscapes with Cattle, number 65, was Fusilier's The Nightmare, number 64. Horace Walpole, Walpole wrote one word beside the entry in his catalog. Shocking. On day two of the exhibition, the Morning Post newspaper provided some helpful, quote, rules that have been laid down as essential in assisting the judgment to form a correct opinion of a painting. So in case you were planning to go to the Academy exhibition, you could read this over your morning toast and, and prepare yourself mentally. <laughs> 
These rules included, quote, the expression must be proper to the subject. The drawing must be just. The coloring must be natural, beautiful, and clear. And in all caps, nature must be the foundation that has that, wait, yeah, nature must be the foundation that must be seen at the bottom, but nature must be raised and improved in the painter's mind. Frailing observes that, quote, for an artist such as Fuseli, who liked to assert, damn nature, she always puts me out. This prevailing frame of mind was, quote, not at all promising. <laughs> so the first formal, like, art review, you know, movie reviews, musical reviews, there were art reviews printed in the paper back then. There still are. Why am I saying this like it's past tense? The first formal review of The Nightmare, um, which again was Fuseli's only piece in the Academy show that year, came a couple days later in the Morning Herald. This was met Wednesday, May 8th, over a week after the Royal Academy show had started. Quote, there is a wildness of conception in Mr. Fuseli's picture of the nightshade at the Royal Academy, which teems with that unusual concomitant of genius, inaccuracy. He has introduced a mare's head into the piece to characterize his subject. Now, the personification of that disorder, which attacks the human frame in sleep, is borrowed from a word of northern origin, mare or mare, the French spelling for mother, in which a witch or sorceress. Shakespeare's Mad Tom in King Lear mentions her, and then it kind of trails off into quotes that I don't need to put here. So this critic, it seems, is assuming that Fusely has actually confused the older use of the word nightmare, as so many do today, with the literal meaning which would suggest a horse. So they, again, they're kind of blaming Fusely for that confusion, but I don't think he was ever referencing, like, We've been through this. I don't think he was the one confusing things. I think this critic might be a little confused. But this is the beginning of debates ensuing about the nightmare and about the meaning of this picture. And visitors crowded their way into the Royal Academy's galleries to see what all the fuss was about. So setting the possible meanings to the side for the moment, um, because we've already kind of covered that territory, there was also the actual like appearance of the work for people to contend with. They, following those rules that were printed in the Morning Post, there was a lot of debate about whether this was a quote-unquote good painting. Critic William Hazlitt described the nightmare as a quote, nightmare on the breast of British art, but in the end, it does seem as though public opinion came to rest on the side of considering Fuseli's painting a good one. The Gazetteer of Sunday, uh, June 1st, two days before the exhibition closed, concluded that the nightmare, quote, did conform, after all, to the canons of good taste. They said, any artist who personifies an idea upon canvas has at least the merit of imagination. The present picture seems to be not only well conceived, but well executed. The whole produces the effect very powerfully, and the foreshortening of the head, neck, and arms seem to be given in the true style of drawing. So they're saying, hey, at least he's creative and he knows how to foreshorten a figure, which is, um, if you've never taken a drawing class, foreshortening is when you're kind of looking at... So like, I don't know, picture like an ancient Egyptian body. It's like straight up and down. It's very flat. Foreshortening would be a way of showing a body that is kind of facing you, like coming out of the canvas at you. It's um, at a different angle and you're accurately representing the way that the limbs would appear like shorter or longer based on your perspective. So that's foreshortening. So they're saying, hey, at least he can do foreshortening. 
So viewers who did overcome the like overtly disquieting, unsettling subject matter, the picture they were actually looking at, people who overcame that long enough to conclude that it was good, that's one thing. But most critics found it much more frustrating that there was that lack of any literary or historical influence, any, like we said, firm morals or meaning that they could judge the composition against. There was no jumping off point for them. They did consider most of the possibilities that we've kind of walked through together in the podcast. I don't know how much they knew that Fusely was like this weirdo sexually, but they they did also pick up on the potential influence of dreams in the composition. And this is something that Fusely did actually write about quite a bit as he was... Um, Eventually, he would be an elected associate of the Royal Academy that came in November 1788, which was quite a feat, given that he had no formal art education. (laughs) Um, Christopher Frayling notes that he was, quote, always insecure about his technical limitations. One reason, perhaps, why he went on so much about Phidias and Michelangelo. He had no network of aristocratic patrons, and although he liked to refer to himself as a gentleman, not everyone was convinced. And yet his influence on the course of Western art and media in general because of bringing the Gothic into his composition, that cannot be understated. So dreams were a big, big part of that. Dreams and what we would now call the subconscious. Fusely once wrote, quote, One of the most unexplored regions of art are dreams and what may be called the personification of sentiment. The Telegraph writes that, quote, to get suitably juicy material for his work, the Swiss painter, pioneer of the romantic, was said to have deliberately eaten a raw pork chop before bed. He was also suspected to take opium. Uh, Those two together, I can only imagine, would certainly result in some funky experiences, um, whether waking or asleep. So that entrance of the subconscious and the way that you can kind of ruminate on it That is part of the fascination here. The fascination to the degree that even years after the Royal Academy exhibition ended, there was so much demand to see the nightmare that Fusely not only made another version of it, he also had prints made. So prints that could be more affordable and accessible to the public who would then eagerly buy them and take them home. So going commercial in this way to, to, I don't know, you could say highbrow critics, That to them served to kind of cheapen Fusely's artistic prowess um, and the more prestigious collectors. And this association does sort of follow into his legacy now. Um, We kind of think of him as this eccentric artist, um, however genius he might actually be. Now, of course, because of those prints being made and because of the image pervading culture, it's wormed its way into the zeitgeist, right? There have been spoofs of the nightmare that began almost instantly and and go up to today. So one of these, one of the earliest, was by engraver Thomas Rowlandson. Uh, It surfaced in 1784, two years after the Royal Academy exhibition. It was called The Covent Garden Nightmare, and it showed politician Charles James Fox lying naked on a bed, um, not sleeping, but in the pose of a fainted damsel in distress. The rest of the composition, which interestingly is mirrored because um, Rowlandson would have kind of copied the composition directly onto his printing plate from Fusilier's original painting. But then when you would print it, it would print 
backwards. Like you would kind of flip it as you were printing. So the composition is like backwards, but it's gesturally the same. It it shows Fox having being tormented by an incubus sitting on his chest. It's really kind of delightful as a spoof. It's basically a political cartoon, you know, and such satirical uses continue to this day. There's even one from 2011 um, by cartoonist Steve Bell for The Guardian. It shows former German Chancellor um, Angela Merkel being tormented by former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who is the incubus. This would have been in the midst of the Eurozone crisis or the European sovereign debt crisis. So this, like, archetype of an image it's it's stuck with us since the 1780s and that's that's really Fuseli's influence more than anything else I think he did go on to teach the next generation of painters at the Royal Academy and in 1801 began a series of lectures there that would eventually number around a dozen Fuseli died quote-unquote suddenly I guess it was unexpected he had always been pretty healthy, which surprises me if he was eating a raw pork chop before bed in days when refrigeration was very rudimentary. Um, Anyway, he passed away suddenly on April 16th, 1825, and was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral, London, which if you've never been, highly recommend. It's not only where Diana and Charles got married, but it's where a lot of the British greats are buried um, in the crypt underneath. The artist was 84 years old, and he had been fairly prolific and financially successful during his lifetime. He had painted more than 200 pictures, exhibiting only a very small number of them, and he had produced over 800 drawings and sketches. We will never see many of them, however, um, because after Fuseli's death, his wife Sophia burnt the most, quote, shockingly indelicate of them which had, again, spanned his entire artistic career. So yes, I'm talking about the weird stuff, the pornographic stuff. Quote, it was a superb cover-up. The Swiss now now lies alongside Nelson, Wellington, Turner, and Wren in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral. But one can't help thinking he should be spending eternity at the shrink instead. And that, of course, comes from that Telegraph article, which I just... It's so well-written. I love it. It's fun. So that is the story of Henry Fuseli's The Nightmare. Um, Maybe it's a little less horrifying to you now. Maybe it's more horrifying. Um, Let me know what you think. Uh, Send me a DM on the Instagram or you can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. If you have any other comments or questions um, or suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you there. Um, Thank you so much for listening. This is... Like I said, the Halloween episodes are some of my favorite to do. So I hope you enjoyed that as well. If you did, don't forget you can leave us a rave review, <laughs> give us a rating, um, subscribe, tell a friend. It, again, really, really does help us grow this podcast, which I love so much. I always learn something as I'm pulling together my notes to share with you. So happy Halloween. Thank you once again so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, 
Face-Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face-Off wherever you get your podcasts.